Part 7 of The Highwayman by H. C. Bailey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Colonel stayed at Pontois and sent your Waverton off to St. Germain with a mighty plausible letter about secret proposals from the chief of the Whigs, which brought the king out to hear them secretly. Ma foi! I think Charles Middleton should have smelt a rat. But it was a clever trick, and to choose your Waverton to play it was masterly, for who could think that Peacock would be in anything crafty? At Pontois I tumbled in upon them, and your father, mon cher, he ran off on sight of me. Observe, I press nothing against him. I allow that the best evidence I have against him is just that. He ran away when he saw me. Secondly, he had with him some three, four rascals whose faces would hang them. And thirdly and lastly, beloved brethren, these fellows, when put to it and charged with a plot to murder King James, were frightened for their lives and babbled wildly, of which the sum was that they had been brought but to kidnap him. I grant ye they may have lied and i would not hang a dog who was not a whig upon their word but confess mon cher the thing is black enough what did the colonel want with king james alone why did he need his bullies why did he run away i leave it with you harry knocked out his pipe i am obliged for the story sir why did you tell it you have a cold blood in you mon enfant said Captain McBean. Observe, I look for nothing wonderful from you. I allow your position is very difficult to a man of honour, and with all my heart. Oh, Lord, sir, let's have nothing pathetic. Aye, aye, McBean bowed. Mr. Boyce, I do profess. I feel the delicacy of the affair, and I detest it, pardieu. But I dare not absolve ye from your duty. Oh, sir, you are very sublime. Hear me out, Mr. Boyce. I have shown you cause to fear that your father has it in mind to compass a vile treachery, perhaps a murder. Would you deny it? Damn, sir, I am not the day of judgment. Bien. I believe that is an answer. I declare to you there is yet a chance that he may succeed, I, here in London. Harry swore. If your friends must go walking into traps, what is it to me? Well, sir, though you will own no loyalty to king or queen or country, I'll not be deceived. I call on you for your aid. It's believed your father is in London. It is likely he will seek you out, as he did before. Maybe at this hour you know where he is. If I did, should I betray him to you, sir? I ask no treachery, but I do call on you, discover his purpose, if you can, and, and if he intends violence to the king, prevent it. Lord, sir, it's to save your father from infamy and your own name. The king, the pretender, is in London, Harry cried. I told you that I should trust you far, Mr. Boyce. Harry stared at him, and after a moment stood up. I can do nothing, he said. It is of all things most unlikely that I should do anything. 
for what i know my father is dead he has been nothing else to me all my life but i believe i should thank you well quoth mcbean god help you i ha' drawn a bow at a venture i think i have hit something mr boyce chapter twenty one consolations by a father do you remember how frightened swift was of the mohawks how he came home early and even that was bitter spent some pence on being carried in a sedan chair to avoid the race of rakes that play the devil about this town every night slit people's noses and so forth he had some reason to fear was there a watchman took his hourly rounds safe from their blows or new invented wounds in these last days of queen anne their way was to gather and take plenty of liquor then make a general sally and attack all that are so unfortunate as to walk the streets through which they patrol some are knocked down others stabbed others cut and carbonadoed the women would be turned upside down or clapped into barrels and rolled over the stones it was a dark night with but a glimpse of the new moon when harry left captain mcbean from bow street to the hand of pork in long acre was only a few hundred yards but murky enough and harry took mr gay's advice for such night walking let constant vigilance thy footsteps guide and wary circumspection guard thy side nevertheless as he was coming by the corner into long acre he was surprised by a sound at his heels he stepped quickly aside and turned upon it felt a blow upon his head saw flashes of light and the street whirling round rose up to meet him and he knew no more when he came to himself he was in a room with fire and lights he raised himself and heard voices then someone was standing over him he looked up into his father's face who was that he said feebly don't you see yet harry it will soon pass off lord i know you who are the others there is none here but me said colonel boyce harry looked painfully round the room and saw that it had become empty what was it a pistol said he and began to feel his head egad nothing so gentlemanly a cudgel by the look of the bruise a mohawk's club i suppose i found you lying in the kennel as i was coming home oh you're at home are you harry laughed stupidly and where is home these are my lodgings in martin's lane harry and you are welcome but what have you to do in town young husbands should not be night-walkers harry stared at him for a moment i thought you knew everything he said then beginning to scramble up he became aware that his clothes were all undone coat shirt even breeches odzo why are you stripping me i found you so they shave you close the mohawks they are a queer crew your mohawks harry looked at his father what should i carry inside my shirt then he thrust his hands into his pockets well i had not much but all's gone 
damned rogues said his father with honest indignation how much have you lost harry five guineas or so i can make that good at least but what is it to you you are a warm fellow now what you've made no hole in madame alison's money-bags yet you're offensive do you know harry said i have been itching to tell you so colonel boyce's face set what now are you against me sirrah odds fish you're a martyr ain't you harry laughed but we are beginning at the end i think if you remember sir you promised to take me to france and went off without me d'ye quarrel with that why you had a fatter fish to fry than you could catch with me so i left you at her and you had dined upon her what's the matter then you were not honest with me colonel boyce laughed ah bah you will be a puritan it must be your mother in you my mother thank you we'll come to her but one tale at a time you let me think i was to go with you till you were gone without me you took waverton and told me nothing of that till you had him safe away egad boy it was all for your good perhaps you did think so said harry after a moment in fact it's what i complain of you want to play providence to me pray sir go about your business colonel boyce shrugged you're a proper grateful son so be it you have your wealthy wench and want to know more of me well go to the devil your own way harry by your leave i prefer it but there's more sir now comes mr waverton and declares to my wife and me that you enticed him into a vile plot for your pretense of a mission to the pretender was nothing but a device for murder mr waverton said that to mrs harry boyce egad it wasn't civil of mr waverton and what did the lady say to him that's no matter what do you say to him sir did you intend murder lord harry you talk like a ranting parson it was not your way who has put this buzz of morality into your head i suppose your pretty wife would have you break with your father he's a low coarse fellow faith who might want some of her money we will leave my wife out if you please she will not trouble you she and i have parted god's my life what's the quarrel harry shrugged does one ever know i was not good enough for her i believe and perhaps she was not good enough for me damn you for a prig says his father if you like but you'll remark that i do not complain of her bah you make me sick sir not complain of her that luscious piece egad you should be drunk with her but you're not a man harry you're a parson oh command your emotions she rebelled against being wed to a man whose father ran about the world compassing murder to a man who was withal a low fellow a bastard so far it is your affair i see you are no hand with a woman do i take after you sir we came upon a woman who said she was mrs oliver boyce and could not live with him and 
boasted vehemently that she was no mother of mine. Colonel Boyce plucked at his mouth. So dear Rachel has got her finger into the pie. Why, Harry, have you had no luck? She is your wife, then. Oh, I admire your taste, sir, and pray, who was my mother? Colonel Boyce began to say something and stopped. It's no matter. I believe she would not wish you to know. Why, Harry, I profess I am sorry. If we had been married, better for us all. Oh, you will be mysterious still. I suppose you are as tender of her honour as of mine or your own. And this matter of murdering the pretender, pray, is that a mystery too? Colonel Boyce became restless. Odds life, sirrah, there is no matter of murder. Who told you so? The fool Waverton? And where did he get the tale? A gentleman who runs away tells his own tale. Now mark, Harry, the plan was but to bring Prince James to England. Dead or alive, Harry laughed. Pshaw! I had him at Pontois and was doing well with him. Then in comes a swashbuckling Scots Jacobite, which is my private enemy, and a dozen bullies at his tail. Well, I had no mind to have him stick me or turn me over to the French as a spy of Marlborough's, so I went off. The fool Waverton let himself be taken. I made no doubt the Scot filled him to the brim with slanders of me. But is that my fault? So you're done with the pretender? Colonel Boyce gave his son a queer look. Why, there's not much to be done with him in Martin's Lane, boy. Then what are you doing? He garred Harry. I should think you want to lay an information against me. Waiting for better times is all my business now. My bolt's shot. And pray, sirrah, what may be your business now you've cut loose from Mrs. Allison? Harry laughed. Living on my means? Why, does she settle something on you? Harry looked at his father without affection. Do you know, sir, I am not always proud of your name. Egad, but you must have money somehow. The family motto, I suppose. Well, sir, I write for the press. Good God, not for the newspapers. You have not fallen to that. Oh, sir, the shillings are clean by comparison. They looked at each other for a minute or two. You walk abroad late, Mr. Arthur, said Colonel Boyce. Do you make friends in your profession? I believe I have two in the town, a hack-writer for Lintot and an usher at Westminster. And what then, pray? You were with them to-night? You are paternal on a sudden, sir. Do you think of putting me out to nurse again? So Colonel Boyce stood up as if he had finished, and then forced a laugh and slapped his son's shoulder. Come, Harry, why quarrel? There's room enough for you here. I allow I owe you something. Join in with me. I have no luck in mysteries, sir. I'll wish you good night. Now you bear me a grudge, his father protested. What, for getting me born? Sometimes, perhaps. Egad, Harry, I should like to do something for you. Then give me a sword. A sword? And what for, in God's name? In case I meet any more of your mohawks. Colonel Boyce was taken aback for a moment. Then he cried out heartily, Damn, the rogues took five guineas from you, too. 
Here, fill your purse, child. He shot out gold on the table. I'll take back my five guineas, said Harry, and counted them while his father watched with a frown. There are swords of mine below, said Colonel Boyce. They went down, and from a rack of arms Harry chose a plain black hanger with an agate hilt. As he did it on, he saw below it some heavy staves loaded with lead, just such as the Mohawks used. "'And where do you lodge?' says Colonel Boyce. "'At the Hand of Pork in Longacre. Good-bye, sir.' Colonel Boyce nodded, and for some time after he had gone stood at the door, watching. Chapter 22 Two's Company Alison was gone back to her house at Highgate, and immediately regretted it. She took her adventures in a youthful, egoistic fashion, saw herself as a lovely woman made the prey of man and robbed of her right to her own life, a tender, confiding soul, deceived and tortured into despair. The Lincoln's Inn fields became the abomination of desolation. Her fine society was dust and ashes and mankind in general all mocking villainy. So it was natural that she should retire from the world and become a recluse of tragic dignity. What other part is there for the deserted wife to play? But she came upon awkward difficulties. The world would not be left behind. It was much more closely about her among the woods and meadows of Highgate than in her London drawing-room. The would-be fine ladies and gentlemen of her routes and her card-parties, so the sweetmeats and the wines and strong waters were good enough, cared nothing whether she had a husband upstairs or somewhere else. Out in the country everyone, gentle and simple, had a curious eye upon her. The very woods and meadows must be jogging her memory and putting her questions. Everyone had known Miss Lambourne of the hall and gone whispering about a strange, passionate marriage. Each pleasant path and lane had seen something of that first wild happiness. All day long she was driven back upon herself and what she had lost. There is no doubt that she suffered. Of course, she still told her wonderful tales about the shame she had to bear and her torturing wrongs, and beyond doubt she believed most of them, for she would still profess to herself a miserable degradation in being married to a man of no name. She would be gloomily convinced that Harry was by his father's villainy a proven knave, but what hurt her most was the growing suspicion that she was much to blame for her own plight, Alison Lambourne, who acknowledged no law but her own will, who had never dreamed that she could be wrong in her desires, driven to confess a ruinous blunder. Imagine her distress. At first she chose to pretend that she had been overthrown by passion. The more she tried to despise Harry, the more that fancy shamed her. But there was in her a strength which refused to be content with that. She would still boast to herself that she was not the woman to be swept away by a gust of longing for the man who chanced to take her eye. And so she brought down on herself the inexorable question, 
if harry were man enough to wake passion in her and deserve her magnificence why had she driven him off for all her selfishness and her insolent pride she had a vehement desire a part perhaps of her very pride in her womanhood to owe him nothing to pay him fair to give him all that a man could ask little by little she forced herself to believe that she had failed of that after all he had offered her nothing but himself poor friendless of no repute indolent careless of all the world and she had professed content what his father might do was no matter to that he had offered her what he was and given it faithfully and she had not played fair when she found herself confessing that she discovered a new power of being wretched all the romantic egoistic melancholy went down the wind the finest proudest of her her own honour told of a torturing wound i'll satisfy you that had been the boast before the wild marriage was done and after all she had chosen to deny him nothing else could matter there could be no excuse it was he that she had taken not his name or what he might be and he had not changed it was herself that she had promised what other honour for woman or man than to give like for like and she had broken faith she was humiliated a state of all others the most dolorous for alison to it came on a merry spring day mr waverton she was in two minds whether to let him see her and then too proud to hide from him or greedy of a chance to hurt him had him in mr waverton had decorated himself for a house of mourning his large form was all black and silver and drooped sympathetically his handsome face was set in a chastened melancholy as of one who grieves for another's trouble with a modest satisfaction dear lady says he tenderly and bowed over her hand dear geoffrey says she here's a new song madame vengeance is mine was the refrain last time now it's weeping over the penitent prodigal how i love you geoffrey mr waverton made a gesture of emotion an exclamation i wronged you alison he said in a deep voice nay but you must forgive me i have suffered too remember i had lost all ah no said alison tragically you had still yourself geoffrey his emotion was understood to be too much for mr waverton in a little while we have both been the sport of villainy he said forgive me alison i remember that i spoke bitterly can you wonder i had dreamed of you in his arms i see you here in that knave's power ah i was beside myself and he laughed do you remember he laughed he never would take you to heart in fact a treacherous hound said mr waverton with startling vehemence oh he was honest when he laughed mr waverton swept harry out of the conversation forgive me alison i should have known my heart should have told me oh lord and is your heart to give tongue now my heart said mr waverton with dignity my heart is always crying to you and now now that the first agony is past i know all 
I wish I did, said Alison, and looked in his eyes. But even then, ah, Alison, I have blamed myself cruelly. Even then I should have known that when your eyes were opened, when you knew the truth, you would have no more of him. You might have known, Alison said slowly, you might have judged me by yourself. Aye, that indeed, said Mr. Waverton heartily, for we are very like. Alison, we are of the same spirit, you and I. You make me proud. It's our tragedy. We so like, so made to answer each other, should be betrayed to our ruin by this same vile trickster. Oh, I blame you no more than myself. This is too generous. No, says Mr. Waverton, no. When I came on that woman of yours, that Mrs. Weston, faith, I am glad you have cut her off, too. I never liked that woman. Yes, she is poor. There it is. I doubt she was in Boyce's pay. Alison opened her eyes at him. Oh, Geoffrey, you surpass yourself today. Go on, go on. If you please, says Mr. Waverton, something ruffled. I believe he hired her to play his game with you. Had you a suspicion of it when you sent her packing? By God, Geoffrey, I could suspect anyone when you talk to me. She is bitter against you. When I heard from her that you had driven the fellow away from you, I was on fire to come to you. To forgive the prodigal, oh, your nobility, Geoffrey, and pray, where did you meet Mrs. Weston? Why, in the high street here. She lodges in one of those wretched cottages behind the street. She is here? Alison shivered a little. Perhaps she has some game to play yet. She may be his spy. Be warned against her. Alison leant forward in her chair. Her face was hidden from him. You are giving me a lesson, Geoffrey. I'll profit by it, I promise you. Alison. Mr. Waverton gave a laugh of triumph. I fight for us both, and I promise you I am eager enough. As soon as I learnt that you had left him, why, he was delivered into my hand. By heaven, he shall find no mercy now. Already I have him watched. I went to an attorney, much practised in these treasonous cheating plots. And of him I have hired trusty fellows who know all the rogues in London and their hiding holes. You said something? But Alison was laughing. I believe there is some humour in it, Mr. Waverton conceded grandly. Well, they have tracked him down. Our gentleman lies at a filthy tavern in the Long Acre, the leg of pork or some such lewd name. He haunts Jacobite coffee-houses and the like low places. They believe that he makes some dirty money by scribbling for the press. A writer in the newspapers. He is sunk almost to his right depth. They make no doubt that before long we shall catch him dabbling in some new treasonous matter. And then he made gestures of doom. Well, and then? The law may revenge us on the treacherous rogue, said Mr. Waverton with majesty. Alison stood up. Mr. Waverton, always polite, started up too. I give you joy, Geoffrey, she said very quietly. Not yet, not yet, Mr. Waverton put up a modest hand. I believe there is nothing you could feel. 
Mr. Waverton recoiled and stared his bewilderment. You carry a sword, Geoffrey? Oh, that I were a man. To use it upon him? Bah, such rogues are not worth the honour of steel. Oh, honour, honour, she cried, and flung out her arms, trembling. The honour of you and me. What was Mr. Waverton to make of that? I believe I have excited you, says he. By God, it is the first time, Alison cried, and turned on him so fiercely that he started back. There was a servant at the door saying something which went unheard. Then Susan Burford came into the room, an odd contrast in her placid simplicity to the amazed magnificence of Mr. Waverton or Alison's tremulous, furious beauty. Alison was turned away from her and too much engaged to hear or be aware of her. "'Here is Miss Burford,' said Waverton in a hurry. Alison whirled upon her. "'You! You have nothing to do here.' "'My dear Alison,' Waverton protested. "'Miss Burford, you're very obedient.' Susan made him a small, leisurely curtsy and sat down. "'Oh, please give me a dish of tea,' she said. "'We have not seen you at Tetherden in this long while,' Mr. Waverton complained genially. "'I believe not,' says Susan. Alison stared at her. "'Why do you come here? You know you despise me.' "'I do not come to people I despise,' says Susan placidly. "'Well, I am private with dear Geoffrey, if you please.' "'My dear Alison, I must be riding. We have finished our business, I think. I'll not fail to be with you again soon. I hope to have news for you.' "'Miss Burford, you're most obedient.' Susan bent her head. "'Alison?' He held out his hand and smiled at her protective affection. Geoffrey said Alison, and looked in his eyes. She did not take the hand. She was very pale. Mr. Waverton's smile was withered. He took himself out with a jauntiness that sat upon him awkwardly. Then Alison turned again upon Susan. Do you want to know what I have to do with him? she said fiercely. No, says Susan. Alison stared at the fair, placid face, and cried out, you are a fool. Oh, my dear, says Susan. I hate that cold, flabby way of yours. You think it is all good and wise and kind. It's like a silly mother with a spoilt child. You're not spirit enough to scold, and all the while you are thinking me vile and base and mean. But that is ridiculous. Nobody could think you mean, Susan said. There it is again. You believe it is kind to talk so, and it drives me mad. I am shameful, do you hear? I am shameful, and perhaps I want to be, and I loathe myself. Now go. I shall not stay with you. Go. Susan stood up. Alison. Oh, Alison, she said. Alison flung out of the room. Chapter 23 The House in Kensington Late in that evening one of Alison's servants rode up to the hand of pork and inquired for Mr. Boyce. After some parley, he was told that Mr. Boyce had not been in the tavern that day, so he left a letter in the tap and rode back to Highgate. That letter, which was not heard of till long afterwards, ran thus. 
Mr. Boyce, I desire that you would come to me at Highgate. I have to-day heard from Geoffrey Waverton what you must instantly know, and the truth is I cannot be content till I speak with you. But I would not have you come for this my asking. Pray believe it is urgent for us both that we meet, and I do require it of you, not desiring of you what you may have no mind to but to be honest with you and lest that should befall which i hope you would not have me bear signed a an ungainly confused composition as you see but it set forth very clearly the state of alison's unhappy mind she was revolted of course by geoffrey's scheme of spying and trapping loathed him for propounding it to her and was eager to warn harry against it and clear herself of any part in the vile business but she would not have harry suppose that she was praying him to come back to her this time at least there should be no wooing on her side if she wanted him hungrily shamefully he should not know till he chose to take her but he must come to her and be told all the tale and hold her free of any part in Geoffrey's baseness. So she fought with herself, and wrote of her strife, and, as things went, it mattered nothing to Harry, for he never knew of it till much else had happened. When he woke on the morning, after his affairs with Captain McBean and the Mohawks and his father, woke with a sore head and a very stiff shoulder, he was a prey to puzzled excitement. There is no doubt that McBean had engaged his affections. He was not indeed very grateful for the fantastic duel. Of all men Harry Boyce was the least likely to be pleased by oddity or an extravagance of chivalry. He always thought, I believe, that Captain McBean was a little mad and liked him none the better for it. But he confessed that with the madness there was allied a most persuasive mind a very reasonable reason the combination may not be so surprising to you as to harry boyce he thought that mcbean's exposition of the affair of his father and his consequent duty was exactly and delicately true which means of course that it agreed with his own temper he had no more doubt than mcbean that his father had planned was planning treachery which win or lose would disgrace him he admitted that it was his own wretched duty to do what he might to make an end of these plans you smile perhaps at harry boyce claiming for himself the commands of duty he was eminently not a saint he was not delicate and yet thrust upon an awkward choice it is certain that he chose what must be difficult hazardous and distressing rather than stand aloof and let his father's villainy go its way i make no pretence of exalting him into a tragic fellow he had no affection for his father no respect merely to work against his father's will to smash his father's schemes would certainly not have cost him one twinge he had no hate for his father either nor the least ambition to ruin him or make him suffer 
but he would heartily have liked to bring these murderous plots to nothing and yet save his father from vengeance harry had his share of the common human instinct to keep one's family out of mischief or at least out of the newspapers and it is not to be denied that there was also active in him a simple human animosity he bore his father a grudge for being publicly a knave a man who had received nothing from his parents but the gift of birth might fairly demand that they should not bother him with their rogueries he did not extenuate his father's share in the catastrophe of the marriage perhaps it was in itself fated to miscarry but if colonel boyce had not mixed up his affairs with it the end need not have been ignominious harry vigorously condemned the old gentleman's meddling it was an impertinence at the best to manipulate other folks and a father who did it so stupidly as colonel boyce was a pestilent nuisance but all this i believe rankled less than the behaviour of colonel boyce on the night before if the old gentleman had acknowledged his offences if he had even been content to talk of them frankly man to man he might have been forgiven but his affectation of profound wisdom his patronage and above all his parade of mystery infuriated harry's lucid mind it sought further causes of offence and had no difficulty in finding them everything about that conversation was suspicious for how did it begin with a broken head with every button of his clothes torn open as though he had just been searched to the skin he woke up in his father's presence the father might pose as a good samaritan who had come upon a sufferer by the wayside but he should not have shown so nervous an anxiety to know what the sufferer had been about the father talked of mohawks but what mohawk were these who knocked a man down before making sport of him and not content with taking his money went through all his clothes why was a mohawk's club lying there beneath the father's swords harry made a ready guess at the riddle his father must have fellows watching mcbean's house they had knocked him down to search him for papers then the father must have known that he had been with mcbean and those anxious questions were to discover how much he was mcbean's friend colonel boyce must have a lively interest in the affairs of mcbean and yet he professed that he had now nothing in hand what if he knew of the secret of the pretender's coming to london what if he was still seeking a chance to accomplish his plot of murder well captain mcbean expected no less of him captain mcbean was in the right of it it became a good son's duty to confound his father's politics there's no denying that harry went into the business with zest while he ate his breakfast in the tap-room he caught sight of a fellow lurking about outside whose spy this was is in fact not certain afterwards colonel boyce vehemently denied that he had commissioned any man against harry though you may not believe him it is possible that the fellow was one of those in waverton's pay 
Harry made no doubt that his father was the offender. He went upstairs again and put a book in his pocket. He had been commissioned for a translation of Ovid, which, let us be thankful, never came into print. Thus characteristically provided, he went out to baffle the spy and the father. In the courts between Drury Lane and Bow Street he did some ingenious marching and counter-marching whereby, he was always confident, and we cannot be quite sure, the spy was shaken off. He then came into St. Martin's Lane by the north end, and, dodging in and out of it more than once, made for a tavern close to his father's lodging. He planted himself inside by a window, called for a tankard and a pipe, and divided his attention between the Tristia and his father's door across the lane. It soon appeared that Colonel Boyce was to have a busy morning. By ones and twos a dozen men went into his house. They were not, even to Harry's hostile eye, brazenly ruffians. Something of the bully they might have about them, for they ran to brawn and swagger, but they were trim enough and brisk, and had no smack of debauch. A company of old soldiers, by the look of them, and still not past their prime. They were with Colonel Boyce a long time, and Harry grew very sick of the Tristia, and had to drink more beer over it than was his habit of a morning. They came out at last singly, and yet with very short intervals between them. They all turned the same way, across Leicester Fields. They seemed to Harry something so uncommon in this that he was moved to follow. He made his way out by the back door and the tavern yard. As he came into Leicester Fields, he saw that the units had already amalgamated into three companies. They were all steadily marching westward, keeping behind a cart he followed them, and after a while bought for twopence a lift in an empty hay-wagon. I record all this, because he seems to have been very proud of it, which is characteristic of his simple nature. The hay-wagon rumbled him past two companies of them, halted and coalescing at an inn. The first still headed him at a good round pace all the way to Kensington. The wagon was going through Kensington Village that this vanguard, too, had found an inn. A little farther on he abandoned his wagon, and, buying bread and cheese at a farm, made his dinner under the hedge. It was a long while before he saw anything more of the gentleman of the inn, and, lying among primroses and cowslips, he nearly forgot all about them, and his excitement and his wonderful tactics. He was, in fact, becoming sentimental, and had made three neat hendecasyllabics to the cowslips when the gentleman came out again. They split into pairs and marched on briskly. Harry went through the hedge, and from behind it he watched them pass. Then, as now, the road ran straight, and it was not safe to come out and follow them till they were far ahead. While he waited, he heard more tramping, and in a little while the rest of the company went by. He peeped out after them, and saw an odd thing. 
though the road ran straight for a mile or more the first party had vanished already harry climbed a tree it was some little time before he discovered the lost party they had scattered they had taken to the fields and under hedges they were making southward the rest of the company did likewise soon he saw what they were after there was a lane running from the high road towards fulham a little way back from it in a good garden stood a house of modest comfort doubtless the place to which some gentleman about town came for his pleasures or a breath of fresh air about its grounds the company went into hiding harry came down from his tree in a hurry and like an honest man took to the high road it was you know his one uncommon capacity to go easily at a round pace he did his best along the road and down the lane and though he caught a glimpse of a coat here and there unchallenged he came up the drive and across the garden to the door of the house he had hardly knocked before he was being inspected through a peephole the door was opened and instantly shut behind him he was in darkness dimly lit by one candle the windows had their shutters closed and barred what's your will sir says the man who let him in the master of the house if you please two other men lounged into the hall and your name sir you may say that i came from captain mcbean the man appeared to think it over that's true enough faith says another advancing out of the shadow harry recognized one of the solemn seconds of the duel patrick o'connor will i serve your turn sir if your master here i am not come on now he led the way to a room where a cadaverous man richly dressed sat huddled over a fire tis a gentleman from the captain my lord mr boyce my lord sale harry bowed my lord yawned you're a devil of a name mr boyce says he i deplore it and hope to disgrace it is it possible said my lord and yawned again i had the honour to tell you my lord that i answer for the gentleman says mr o'connor you may endorse the devil if you please my lord sneered harry struck in i came to tell you my lord that your house is watched and by now surrounded damn them they have found it out have they says my lord and spread out his lean hands to the fire how many if you please says o'connor a dozen or so they marched out this morning scattered and met again in the village and came here across country they are well armed i believe and look men who would fight odds fish that nets this hole says my lord pray mr boyce when will they put the ferret in harry shrugged oh there is a limit to your kindness is there do you choose to tell us who sent them harry was silent a moment and then blurted out they came from colonel boyce's lodging my lord laughed sure tis an honour to know you sir says o'connor and bowed to harry damned filial indeed my lord chuckled o'connor turned upon him they have you beat easily my lord he said fiercely damned courageous indeed 
but my lord only nodded at him what we be six to count mr boyce sure we could hold the house against the devil's christening there came in briskly a tall fellow crying come sale it's full time i believe my lord sale got on his feet stop me sir i believe not he drawled we must stay at home they have smoked us here's a gracious youth come to tell us that his whiggish friends beset the house pretender frowned and seemed slow to understand harry looked him over he was certainly a fine figure of a man and bore himself gallantly enough his face was darkly handsome in a melancholy fashion not unlike the youth of his uncle charles the second he turned upon harry what is all this sir oh sir it's that old rogue noel boyce my lord put in and here's his son betraying the father faith my lord i'll remind you of that o'connor said sir the gentleman is an honest gentleman colonel boyce he is your father sir the pretender bent his black brows over harry he begot me he said harry shrugged i desire to defend you from him he has surrounded your house here with a dozen sturdy knaves who intend you i believe the worst i am obliged by your service sir says the pretender coldly pray my lord is the coach ready my lord shook his head i don't advise it sir the good mr boyce cannot be lying or allow the knaves mean but to frighten you i dare not risk your person dare you dare too much my lord who command neither my person nor my honour i do not thank you for your advice you will have the coach brought instantly i ask your pardon sir and beg you to consider what will the world say of me if i let you run into a gang of murderers we can maintain the house against them till our friends come seeking us in the open we are outnumbered desperately nay sir be advised what is to lose by waiting if you go you grasp at a shadow and may throw away your life for it i say my lord i do not thank you for your care of me which is careless of my honour and your own i am promised to our friends do you desire me to go afoot my lord i have done sir my lord bowed and went out sir i believe they will not spare you says harry i have heard you the pretender said haughtily and waved him away i'll not be put off so the pretender turned upon him sir i have done what i could to save your life from a base plot if it succeeds the shame of it must fall upon me and my name for it's my cursed father that planned it and you choose to run upon the danger i entreat you do me right your blood should not be upon my head you have done your duty mr boyce the pretender bowed i thank you but i must do mine why faith sir tis the right of principle of war to wait the rogues here says o'connor you will not go to man i say it again and again for the first time in their acquaintance harry saw mr o'connor smile i have the honour to take your orders sir but sure we are not at the end of our tactics i'll presume to advise you 
let the coach come to the door and me and the other gentleman will make some display of mounting her and guarding her she moves off slowly it's any odds the rogues will believe we have you with us and deliver their main attack while you'll be mounting quietly in the yard with my lord and ride off with him to kensington the plan is well enough have it so said the pretender carelessly o'connor went out in a hurry and harry followed him i'll join you if you please mr o'connor o'connor laughed oh your servant your servant no offence mr boyce i profess i have an admiration for you but faith you are not a man of war do you go round to the stable-yard now and watch there to see they prepare nothing against us from the back he bustled off calling up his fellows so harry with a long face i suppose drifted away to the back of the house the coach was already moving out of the yard and he saw no sign of his father's legion in a moment the groom with one of o'connor's men to help him was busy again in the stable still the legion did not reveal themselves o'connor's man ran back into the house leaving two horses saddled in the stable then the pretender and my lord hurried out and the horses were brought to meet them as they mounted harry heard the clatter of the coach and then pistols and shouts and the clash of fighting the pretender spurred off my lord taking the lead of him through the gate as they passed a shot was fired out of the hedge my lord swayed fumbling at his holsters and crying out ride on sir ride fell from the saddle his foot was caught in the stirrup and the frightened horse dragged him along the ground harry ran up and snatched the bridle how is it with you my lord i have enough i believe my lord gasped damn sir don't fumble at me mount and after him so harry went bumping in the saddle after the pretender end of part seven